Hi, and welcome to the third Helix Global Panorama podcast. From Helix International with me, Rachel Lim, is Serene Wong, Senior Intelligence Analyst. It's my great pleasure to host the third podcast, where one of the Helix Medical and Security Crisis Risk Team is joined by an external specialist to talk about key current affairs and industry topics and to try and make sense of what they mean for business organizations. For this podcast, we will be exploring China's conduct in the Asia-Pacific region recently. Today, it is our great pleasure to have renowned author and Professor Benjamin Ho from the China program at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies, Nanyang Technological University, Singapore with us. He will guide us through the threats and opportunities facing Chinese influence in the Asia-Pacific in 2022. We will look at what this means for organizations operating in the region. So a very warm welcome to Professor Ho and thank you for joining us today. Can we have your take on China's domestic politics, what it's looking like amid the ongoing China-Taiwan tensions and the ongoing COVID-19 lockdown? I think right now what we're seeing in China, it's a heightened level of anxiety socially. I mean, the COVID lockdown has had a deep impact on how many Chinese people live their lives. Because if you recall 2021, basically what the whole world was suffering COVID, life was very much normal in China. And now the stakes are being reversed. So I think it's a huge level of social anxiety. That's one. If you look at economically, it isn't going very well at the moment. Gone are the days where you talk of double-digit percentage economic growth. So economic growth certainly slowing down. Or if you can get anything, 5% or more is considered good. Property issue is a huge problem. The last six months or so, just read an article today. And basically, it's a situation where you've got property out there that is incompleted, either because of companies do not have access to money or people refuse to pay because they feel that they're never going to get a house. So it, yes, in short, it has created a lot of social turbulence at the start since the start of the year. I'm not sure whether the Omicron surge has had anything to do with it or it's some of these deeper structural problems coming back to roost. So domestic politics, of course, in terms of the CCP-ish party, right now, as we are saying, it still seems that presidency would have a run at, at his, in the next administration. So it doesn't look like he's being challenged, notwithstanding the fact that I'm quite sure on the ground, there are a lot of pent-up unhappiness. But if you understand Chinese politics, there's only so much you can do. And a lot of his key rivals have already been purged. So... Even if you're unhappy, you just have to stick with the president. The China-Taiwan relations or tensions is certainly something to watch. I mean, for China, it's a domestic issue, but it is not a domestic issue for many countries, which creates a problem because it is not a domestic issue. It's a foreign policy issue. A lot of countries have some kind of skin in, in this it's not just a China problem that you can isolate itself. It has repercussions internationally, regionally. But at the same time, because it is not a domestic issue for these countries, it raises the issue question as to how much are you going to get involved? It is a very difficult decision because it is both at once a foreign policy issue, which has domestic relevance, but at the same time, because it is not a domestic issue, they would have to calculate how much beef do you have in the game and how much are you willing to commit just on the issue of domestic politics yeah. and also foreign policy, like you said, they're intertwined. 
how influential do you think Chinese public opinion is on Chinese foreign policy? So during the China-Taiwan military drills, we see a lot mm. of Chinese comments on Weibo, very nationalistic comments that's very supportive of what China is doing in Taiwan. Mm. So uh, we cannot discount the influence of the Chinese public when it comes to Taiwan and Hong Kong and even to foreign business operations in these territories. So how influential would you think? I would say very limited. When you say many Chinese comments, the reality is we really don't know. I mean, look if you look at the Chinese population, one point three, one point four billion, even what five thousand comments is putting a number saying many that doesn't really mean anything. Because firstly, you don't know how many the sample size. You don't know whether are these genuine individuals expressing their views or it's one guy saying the same thing in ten different ways, or it's artificial bots. Generating all this content, so it's very hard to pinpoint as to what is really Chinese domestic sentiment about the Taiwanese issue. That does not mean, by the way, that it doesn't matter. I do think the Chinese population are aware. If you want to make a comparison, I would say the Chinese are far more agitated over this issue than the Taiwanese are. The Chinese, I would say, probably be a bit more agitated, and that's partially also because of the kind of narrative the Chinese government has portrayed this whole issue to be. So it's a case of not so much public influence having a lot of. I mean, if you just recall ten years ago when you had Sino-Japanese tensions, the Chinese public were also agitated. Maybe in the same way as right now, they were even burning Japanese cars. I don't hear any of this burning of stuff yet. So in that sense, but the Chinese government is also very careful not to overplay it because if you get let this kind of nationalism get out of hand. And it can easily backfire.、Mm. So in that sense, I would say the Chinese government, the CCP government, is quite clever. On one hand, it wants to ensure that the Chinese population respond in a way that reflects their unhappiness. It's always good to say that you have 1.4 billion Chinese people being unhappy, but at a particular person, no. But at the same time, it will not. It want to ensure that this does not get out of hand, such that it jeopardizes, of or worse still, forces the CCP to make certain decisions that it might not otherwise would want to do. We will move on to、mm. the next section,、okay. which will be about Taiwan、yes. and Hong Kong. So we'll start by saying、mm. that we we all know Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan on second of August, and we knew that China retaliated with a series of naval drills、mm. around the Straits of Taiwan, and we also saw that there were reports of some small scale economic blockade, and subsequently China also conducted additional drills,、mm. but they moved the drills slightly further away from Taiwan Island. And I think most recently we noticed that on twenty sixth of August, the Republican Senator Marsha Blackburn、yeah. let let the fourth U.S. delegation visit to Taiwan, and you know, like two days later, two U.S. ships allegedly sailed through the Taiwan Straits, and we saw that you know the Chinese troops have reported that they are on high alert. So, do you think that these back and forth, these like you know retaliatory kind of actions, going to be like the new normal around Taiwan? I would say the Chinese would have to think very carefully. To be honest, if I've never heard of Marshall Blackburn until you guys reported <laughs> it like two days ago, the U.S. is basically sending okay Nancy Pelosi. Yes, we we know who is she. Very significant person, but responding in that high alert manner to someone to to a Republican senator whom probably many people may not have heard of, it really exposes your vulnerabilities. If I were the United States, it's like okay, I just have to send some 
I wouldn't say low-level, summit-level senator or, or decision-maker mm. over to Taiwan. And this is how the Chinese respond. I mean, if you were from the Chinese side, you have to think, am I going to activate my military again? Because all this comes at a cost. The Chinese will need to calibrate their response. You can say that they have the right to do sorties and to fly around as, as often as they want. But the question is, each time you do that, it is also a burden on military. Of course, one might argue that it's always militaries always need that kind of practice, which is fine. But do you really want to do that all the time? So I would say the Chinese have to think very hard as to how it wants to respond. What is sort of the new normal you know, if you if you use the analogy, if you ask soldiers to high alert and walk around the perimeter of whatever area they're defending all the time, that's going to take a toil on your soldiers. So I would say that the Chinese would have to be careful as to the extent to which it res- to calibrate its response. Whether it's a normal or not, I'm not sure. It's it's hard to say whether that the Chinese will sort of tone down and, and sort of see it. For reasons that are obviously very nationalistic, it cannot be viewed as not responding. So the question is, what kind of response does it want to send? Is it going to be a big entire PLA or maybe the Eastern Command coming in and, and doing that thing? Or we will hold back and not overcommit some of our responses? Actually, also following up to that earlier mm. question about the Republican Senator Marsha yeah. Blackburn. So we kind of know that you know she was one of the sort of like decision maker for this recent bill that the US passed mm. earlier, a couple of months ago. Sure. So it's the Taiwan Democracy Defense Land Lease mm. Act. Mm. So this bill actually <clears throat> would allow the US to support Taiwan with defense supplies. Yes. And this we view as something unprecedented. Okay. So looking at this, we do wonder, you know, like, can we say that the US is moving away from its strategic ambiguity approach towards Taiwan? Because we know that, you know, they've mm. always maintained a sort of like strategic ambiguity about, you know, whether they, to what extent they would like to reach out to Taiwan, mm. how much they want to support Taiwan, how much mm. they want to engage Taiwan at the expense of their relationship with China. Yeah. yeah. I think it's still part of this strategic ambiguity framework. Having a, passing a bill is one thing. Even without this bill, the US is sort of obliged to come to Taiwan's aid. So I, I, would, I wouldn't say this bill has changed fundamentally the US posture to Taiwan. It is still ambiguous to the extent that, well, we don't know. I mean, you will never know until the first bullet is fired. So I would say the US will continue this strategic ambiguity. Obviously, from the Chinese point of view, they might take offense and they might be saying this is... Why are you guys doing that? But the US will just carry on because it doesn't fundamentally change any obligation they have towards Taiwan. So, I mean, a litmus test will be a case if the Taiwanese were to sort of move closer to independence and then we will see what the, the US will respond. But at, as of now, I think nothing much has changed fundamentally. Yeah, at this moment, we do see that it's a lot of like rhetoric yeah. being thrown around. Move on to the next question. Earlier in August, some Chinese military exercises reportedly simulated an attack and an effective blockade around Taiwan, and this actually disrupted mm. shipping and aviation services. So we were wondering, like hypothetically, do you think it's likely for China to actually trigger an air or sea blockade around Taiwan? And you know, if so, what are the warning signs? Mm. Within militarily, obviously, it is within China's ability, provided it has the political will to do it. Because when you talk about blockade, it's not just a one-two-day thing. For it to be meaningful, it has to be a sustained one. A few weeks maybe. So it, it can do it. But I would say 
it must be very careful because some of Chinese interests are also very much linked to Taiwan. For instance, high-end semiconductor trade. It will be shooting itself in the foot if it decides to do something that will hurt themselves. What is more interesting is to see Chinese presence, not just within Taiwan, but outside, even in the Pacific Islands, which I think it's worth thinking about. Because in the event of a conflict between the US and China, it would be much further out where a lot of these for the United States to restock, resupply its military forces in the event of a conflict, it will need these bases further out. I mean, as close as Japan, certainly, but further out as well. I think this is where I would be more interested to see Chinese maneuvers, not so much a blockade around Taiwan, because that would be too obvious. That would be like straight in your face. I really don't think the Chinese would want to do that. And even if it does that, whether it can sustain it for a longer period of time. Yeah. Since you mentioned that question about mm. the Pacific region, yeah. China recently embarked on a Pacific Islands tour okay. in late May. Yeah. So they offered a series of tourism, infrastructure and economic arrangements to these Pacific Island states. So could you tell us a bit on what China's foreign policy is like in the Pacific region and why is there like a renewed Chinese interest mm. in the region? Yeah, I think if you look at Chinese foreign policy, there's both, a, both an offensive element to it and a defensive one. So defensive one is to defend China's interests. But I think in the offensive manner, that the way I see it happening in the Pacific region is that obviously the Chinese view a lot of like AUKUS, for instance, as this US-led mini-lateral to, to contain it. So the only way to break out from that kind of mini-lateral is to ensure that other members within the Pacific Islands sort of throw their go together with China. I mean, so how it works is that every country diplomatically, if, for instance, when the, I think Solomon Islands said no to the US carrier some days ago, it is well within the rights of a small country to deny access of passage to another to foreign countries. So in that sense, it's a very strong signal. You, you don't necessarily have to put an army there, but simply diplomatically by saying no creates all sorts of problems because it means that the United States will have to find other areas to restock, resupply, and it makes the overall coordination much more difficult. I mean, imagine if you are used to stationing or, or going to a particular port to get supplies, and then now the port is closed to you. It means you have to go and find other options. So I would say what the Chinese is doing is very smart. Just by saying no, you deny the so-called adversary access to your own resources. And I would say the more the Chinese is able to capture some of these specific islands, because if you still recall World War II, for the Americans to fight up to Tokyo, basically it had to take that Pacific route. And Solomon Islands, probably those regions were part of their how their forces fought upwards. So yeah, I think it's a very smart move for the Chinese to wouldn't even say place pressure. Because saying no is not a pressure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just have to say no, I sorry, not welcome. And no country will go to war because you are not given access to another country's port facilities. Yeah. Yep. Just elaborating on that, mm. so there are some concerns that China might be looking for favorable naval arrangements in the Pacific Islands mm. to establish their presence there, particularly after the Solomon Islands incident yeah. and the security pact in April this year. So what would be your take on that? I wouldn't say it's they're going to establish a full military base, but simply by having the opportunity to put some of your supplies there speaks a lot. If the Solomon Islands or whichever Pacific island grants the Chinese access, 
the Americans will think twice about wanting to also go in. It creates all sorts of questions and conundrums for the Americans. Do you want to put your stuff in a place where there is Chinese presence? What happens if the Chinese make use of their already existing presence to steal your information? So it, I think in that sense, yes, I certainly that the Chinese they don't have to have a full scale military base. You just have to have that significant token symbolic presence, and that might be enough in in for the most part of it to cause a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. Okay, so currently, after the Pacific Islands tour, we see that there were some Pacific Islands that have shown like a degree of reluctance in mm. engaging beyond infrastructural and ecological protection deals with mm. China. So, um, how would China's relations with the Pacific Islands evolve in the short and the long term? And are there any implications to business interests from that? Well, I'm not sure if we gave the impression that Pacific Islands are devoid of agency, that they are like sort of okay, the Chinese are coming, we have no choice. They they are aware of this game. Small countries always have to be aware of how to maximize their policy. So in that sense, I would say they would be careful. I mean, taking Chinese money and in exchange by denying American some kind of presence, is one of those low hanging fruits. It's not a, a big deal. After all, I don't think the Americans have had any deep presence there. So it's just saying, okay, I'm not going to let you stop by to refuel your carriers. So be it. So the Pacific Islands are aware, and they want to be careful about being overly swallowed by the Chinese dragon because that that will make it basically a vassal state. And I don't think they view their interests in that manner. As of now, it's too early to say how this will plan out. I think the Chinese are also trying to test the ground to see how far they can get. And the Pacific Islands are also sort of wait and see. I mean, for a long, long time, even countries like Australia have ignored them. And the moment the Chinese come in, suddenly they get all the goodies. <laughs> so if you are a leader, you would say, "Hey, that's not a bad deal." Once the Chinese threaten or say they're going to come in and and give us some stuff, everybody is queuing up to give us stuff. I think long run a bit hard to say. I think they are trying to milk the short run for as much as they can. I think that really was the case. When the Chinese came up with the security pact with Solomon、mm. Islands, New Zealand and Australia did step up their diplomacy. diplomacy. They tried to do、yeah. more engagement, and I think it was very evident to the Solomon Islands like Prime Minister because he did give a speech and he said that you know I, my country isn't a vassal state,、mm. and we are aware that New Zealand and Australia have actually sort of neglected us when we reached out to them, and,、yeah. and you know we are doing this based on our own free will、yeah. or something like that.、So、it was really interesting to see how the actions from China actually created such a big. Reaction from、yeah. the region. So talking about that, we would also want to like move away from the Pacific to look at maybe like the Southeast Asia、mm-hmm. area, and then、sure. we also wanted to ask, you know, what is your take on Chinese relations in the wider Asian region currently? Because we know that there are like a variety of regional perceptions of you know what the Chinese has been doing recently in, for example, the. China Taiwan situation because we also see you know this increase in military exercises, this maritime tensions, and also like increased regional concerns about the recent docking of a Chinese surveillance ship in Sri Lanka because of the issue of who has the port ownership and like Sri Lanka debt to China. It's like a whole issue in itself about how extensive is China's、mm. reach in terms of the Belt and Road Initiative, its infrastructure. Projects and how that also translate to like security、mm. and other kind of concerns. Oh, that's a very big question. <laughs> I don't know if I will be able to answer that. 
based on what you ask, what is your take on Chinese relations in Asian region? When you say Asian, maybe it's better to narrow down to Southeast Asia. Yeah, Southeast yeah. Asia. I think right now, Southeast Asia is at a fork, as a crossroads sort of, where it realizes that the Chinese economic market isn't going to keep pumping out money into the indefinite future. So for once, the fact that the Chinese economy is slowing down, as we've mentioned earlier, would have already impacted Southeast Asian leaders' calculations. Or at least I hope they they have factored that and and not to assume that the Chinese economy will still run at 10% growth every year. So that's one. However, a slowing Chinese economy is still a lot of money. So I would say countries will still carry on. And in any case, the fact that China is is a geographical reality is something that you cannot wish away, regardless of whether it's 5%, 0% or even slowing down. So countries will still have to engage China on whatever terms that are out there. I think the way the Chinese view it is that Southeast Asia and Asia, more broadly, has always been its backyard. And for a long time, the Chinese could not understand or even if they could, they did not like the fact that Americans kept pushing. You know, it's, it's almost like saying, what, what are you doing so far out of America? They basically view American presence in a region as containing them. It's very hard for them to see beyond this containing thing because especially when Americans start hammering them on human rights, they say, there you go, that's the same old storyline again. Countries in Southeast Asia, if you recall the last ASEAN meeting not long ago, for once, they actually put in the Taiwan Straits issue in the communique. And, and you know, for, for communique, any new stuff in a joint communique is a big deal. Lah. It's not just there because somebody decided. There's a lot of jostling and behind-the-scenes wrangling before a new term, in this case, the cross Straits, was, was put there. So I think it demonstrated that we Southeast Asian countries are certainly aware. Some of our leaders over the last one or two weeks have also been interviewed. In international interviews have also spoken quite a bit about this. So there is certainly a concern. Whether that will result in war, we all hope not. But as our PM wisely mentioned in his NDP rally, things can change very quickly. So we need to be prepared for it. Speaking about the Chinese economic slowdown that we've Mm. been observing, we've also observed like a loss of foreign investments in Hong Kong, especially Mm. after the whole national security law being Mm. implemented in 2020. So after this China-Taiwan military drill, do you think that Taiwan would experience a similar loss of foreign investments in the short and long term just due to concerns by businesses um, about potential incursion by China? Mm. I think that from the Taiwanese side, it's a bit different from Hong Kong because for more than half a century, this has been a flashpoint. So any business that decides to go into Taiwan would have already gone in with its eyes wide open with cognizant of the reality that these tensions across the streets can erupt at any time. So I would not say it is a case where you suddenly see all the businesses pulling out because those who are there would have already counted the cost and come to some conclusion that we are aware what's happening, but we will remain there. Of course, if war were to break out, that would be the worst case scenarios. Will we see businesses pulling out? I mean, I'm sure you, you will, but we haven't reached that stage. So I don't think businesses who are already there will say, okay, look, look at what the Chinese is doing. I mean, the Chinese have been doing that for a long time. And these businesses are well aware of the risks 
they have to take when they're going to Taiwan. There might be sporadic and perhaps some businesses might have to make contingencies. As, as a good business person, you always want to diversify your risk. But beyond making plans, I don't think it's a case of, okay, let's move, prepare to move out. Yeah. I'm just going to invite Serene to chime in here because we have had some client concerns about retaliatory cyber attacks on Mm. foreign business interests during the Uh, China-Taiwan deals. We have actually seen cyber attacks on foreign businesses in Taiwan and this is a cause for concern Mm. because of the residual operational disruption that it poses to the critical infrastructure. Mm. And, you know, while we are aware that no group has yet claimed responsibility for these attacks, you know, some of these incidents have been allegedly traced to, like, the Chinese mainland. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we don't know if they are state-sanctioned attacks or just carried out by nationalistic vigilante groups. Mm. Yeah, but this seems to be an instance of discriminatory practices against any businesses that are either, you know, pro-US or, like, they appear to be, you know, like, anti-Chinese mm. in that sense because if you supported Taiwan is it may create the impression that you are anti-Chinese. So okay. we, we noted that there were the hacking attempts of like 7-Eleven businesses and also the Taiwanese government websites were taken down temporarily. Mm. And and this seems to be just like a show of capabilities of what non-state sanctioned cyber attacks can do. So, you know, we, we do know that there are no real damages or any mm. significant like loss of data mm. or anything yeah. in these instances because they were sort of like small mm. scale ones mm. you know that's worry you know foreign businesses right like mm. like what more could they do if, if this was just like yeah. a little show of hand yeah so do you think that such practices will increase or will there be more discriminatory practices against non-chinese businesses and what other forms mm. can it take well it goes to show that you need to take your cybersecurity seriously la. You mentioned that there were no real damage to critical infrastructure or business operations. So in other words, it's a minor inconvenience. Maybe a bit of your work get wiped out. So you just have to make sure you back up and then take the necessary precautions. The Chinese would also want to be careful not to overplay its hands because how it works in cyberspace, if you overplay, people will know what you can do. So it doesn't want to do those things such that it reveals its capabilities. It's really incumbent upon businesses to make sure you you guard your own data carefully. And if you don't, then it's high time you do. Because if just besides the Chinese state, criminals can also do it. And since it's a not a very high level thing, I would say it is a reminder that you really got to take all this stuff seriously if you want to be, if you have an online presence. Yeah. Thank you very much for that. It's quite insightful. Thank you, Professor Ho, for your time today. You've been listening to the Helix Global Panorama podcast series by Helix. The views expressed in this episode are those of the guests themselves and do not necessarily represent the official position of Helix. For more information on health, crisis and risk management services, be sure to visit our website at www.helix.com. Don't forget to hit subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes.